Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of We Get to Live. I'm your host Anu and today we'll be talking about the separation. This episode is entirely inspired by the first chapter in my book We Get to Live. So before we dive deep into the separation, we have to explore the nature of knowledge. Knowledge is a way we make sense of things. And essentially knowledge makes distinctions. If I take an example, when I go into the forest, I can see the whole forest as a landscape and I can see the whole forest as a combination of different things, a tree, an oak tree, a shrub, a bush, some grass, an animal, some pebbles, some dirt, a river, some worms. All of these things make a forest a whole. But when I start dividing them, the forest breaks up into its constituent parts. Now that's kind of the nature of knowledge where we have essentially a sense of how things are. And then we sort of break that up to understand why they are the way they are. This process of analysis gives us more information. And the way we learn more things is by associating knowledge with new concepts. So for example, I know what a tree is. And if someone tells me that's a butterfly tree, I'm going to start thinking, I know what a tree is. I know what a butterfly is. So a butterfly tree must be a tree that looks like a butterfly, but it could be a tree that vaguely remembers a butterfly or maybe just the leaves look like a butterfly. I also don't really know if a butterfly tree exists. So, but for the purposes of explanation, new knowledge builds upon existing knowledge. For example, when we learn new concepts, it really helps us to know, it really helps us to associate them with previously known concepts. So for example, if I tell you, um, what's a tetrahedron? So assuming you don't know what a tetrahedron is, and I tell you that a tetrahedron is a three-dimensional solid, which is made up of four equilateral triangles. Now that information can help you determine what a tetrahedron could be. And you might actually understand just from that what a tetrahedron is. You know that it's three-dimensional, so it has length, breadth, and height. You know that it's made of four equilateral triangles, so you can use your imagination and sort of put these equilateral triangles together and you have a kind of object and essentially looks something like a tetrahedron. Now, that illustration simply wishes to convey the fact that we build upon existing knowledge and we build upon existing analyses of the world to make sense of the world. The nature of knowledge essentially gives us ways to understand the world and ways to make distinctions. Now, if I talk about a road, what is your knowledge of the road? A road is where cars go, but also implicit in a road is the fact that there is a footpath. For example, if you're in the Netherlands, it's also implicit that the road has a cycle path and then a footpath. 
So these distinctions help us determine where the bicycles are going to go, where the people are going to walk and where the cars are going to go. If I didn't have this distinction, it would be chaos. I'd be walking and a car would run me over. There wouldn't be any distinction between cars going one way and cars going another way. So essentially these distinctions are convenient for us. They may help us make sense of the world. And also they put a little bit of order in this inherent chaos. But now that's where we come to the root of the separation. Now the separation essentially means to take apart, to divide. And then we must ask ourselves, what is this thing that we're trying to divide? What's this undivided whole? that we seek to divide in order to learn. And now it's important that we do divide this. And I hope that's established with the road example where we definitely need to know where people can walk and where cars can go. But if we look at the origins of knowledge, where if we go back to, let's say our childhood, when we have started to learn how to use our intellectual knife to take the world apart, to start learning Oh, that's a tree. Oh, that's a river. That's a certain kind of river. That's a certain kind of tree. And the distinctions are endless. We can keep splitting things into two and there will be more and more and more parts. We've also split the atom and we found quarks and it keeps going. So there might never be an end to knowledge, which is great because I love learning and I would love to keep learning. But we can also start to explore what is the beginning of knowledge. And here, I think it's also interesting to note what Greek philosophers have said, that the end of all knowledge is contemplation. And I think that really plays into experience. And for me, the understanding, if we go to the beginning of knowledge, then we see that the beginning of all knowledge is experience as well. So it's a circular process. Anything that I learn, I want to be able to apply it into my life in a way that it enriches my life. Sometimes I do want to learn things just for the heck of it, just for fun. But I think eventually anything you learn, even for a moment, 10 years after you've learned it, it starts to make sense. It starts to become something where you're like, wow, I actually didn't realize that this is quite valuable. So the fact that knowledge starts from experience means that we're using the ground level of experience to determine our knowledge. So in that sense, there is no absolute knowledge. There is no knowledge that exists independent of experience. All knowledge is relative. I use different concepts and I put them together to understand a new concept. So when we realize this, we must ask ourselves, what about the undivided whole? Is there knowledge necessary in the undivided whole? And Towards the end of this episode, I will also um, recite part of a poem by Rumi, which echoes the sentiment. But for now, I want to concentrate on the fact that we use our intellectual knife to divide the world. And we've learned how to do this when we were children and when we grew up. And this is the process of knowing and making sense of the world. It's an important process. It's very relevant to finding our way in the world. And I must emphasize this process, but we shouldn't get lost in this, in too much knowledge because knowledge that doesn't serve to enrich experience isn't really helping us in any way. Even we can become guilty of a kind of knowledge hoarding 
or an overaccumulation of knowledge or even greed. Sometimes we don't need to know. Sometimes we just need to be. And when we think about that undivided whole, we see that that undivided whole exists independent of knowledge. It doesn't need to be known in order for it to exist. So if we are looking for knowledge, and I would even argue that if you know about it, you don't know it. And I think the undivided whole can be likened to the Tao in Zen Buddhism, where they say the Tao is unknown to those who know it and known to those who know it not. And that essentially gives us an idea that this undivided whole that essentially precedes our knowledge that comes before any act of knowing is the ground level of reality, which essentially we want to reach. The end of all knowledge is contemplation. So we want through knowledge to reach an experience of the same thing that we started from. And that's where things get interesting. What's important is we, in this whole process of separation, are not dividing the world. We're not cutting up the world in different pieces and trying to make sense of it. We're dividing ourselves. The separation doesn't exist out there. It exists within us. And we are the ones who will suffer the consequences of this if we have separated ourselves too much from our essence. And this essence, this undivided whole, isn't just our essence. It is also the essence of the trees. It is also the essence of the plants, the wind, the water, the oceans, the mountains, the sky, space, stars, the planets. This undivided whole includes everything and it excludes nothing. And while this can sound like a religious sentiment, I believe that it could have been the basis of many religious thoughts. And I think I reached this understanding through reading spirituality, philosophy, and trying to understand what kind of experience were these masters talking about. And this experience is something that is very simple. It's something that seems to be so ubiquitous and so simple that we kind of take it for granted. We're looking for this complex goal that we need to attain. We think that a spiritual experience is climbing up on top of that mountain and feeling, oh my God, I've arrived. But actually, what if a spiritual experience is exactly where you are right now? It's the beginning of where your experience starts from. It's the basis of all that you perceive, all that you think you are, all that you know. And that thought takes our knowledge about what we know beyond knowledge itself. We start to see that we cannot know what we are. Like a fire cannot burn itself, water cannot wet itself. We cannot know ourselves, but we are always that. We are always this being. I don't mean this being as in this individual being, but this being, the verb, this isness. And that is the closest definition we could come to about the undivided whole. And the idea of the separation comes to us as a contrast that we shouldn't run away from the separation just like we shouldn't run away from the undivided whole. But in the process of knowing and in the process of knowledge, we often forget that we are the manifestations of this undivided whole. 
and that we are part of a grander, much larger existence. And that's where in the previous episode I talked about the fact that sometimes the ego can start thinking that it's making up the game, that it's the king. And that doesn't serve the game, let's say, because the ego is part of the game. It's an important vital part. And when I say ego, I do mean our identity, our perception of ourselves, that function in the mind that we call ourselves, the I that I call me. There's an old Zen saying that says, before enlightenment, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. During enlightenment, mountains were no longer mountains, rivers were no longer rivers, which means to say everything condensed into this isness and this being. And then the saying goes on, but after enlightenment, mountains were once more mountains and rivers were once again rivers. And let me add another Zen saying to this. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And in Zen Buddhism, the experience of enlightenment is called Satori. And this experience is the direct realization of the Tao. So the direct experience of that undivided whole, the immersion into the ground of experience from which all knowledge springs from. Once that point of view is revealed to us, that's when things get interesting. Because that's when you can either choose to get lost in the undivided whole, or you can choose to come back and realize how the separation is an important and integral part of existence and that the undivided whole is what we always will be. And we're never going to be anything other than that. Although it's fun to play as if we aren't. It's fun to play as if I am me, you are you. And it's fun to do all these different roles and play in this diversity of life. But if we get too lost, if things start to overwhelm us, we can always come back and realize that we are held in this warm embrace of this moment. And this moment is essentially a slice of eternity. It's holding us like it's always held us, like it's always going to hold us. We're not abandoned. We're cared for. We are taken care of right here. Echoing this sentiment, Albert Einstein once said, when something vibrates, the electrons of the whole universe resonate with it. Everything is connected. The greatest tragedy of human existence is the illusion of separateness. And how true is that? If we look at all of this from the point of view of quantum physics, this is something I've mentioned in the book and I'm not going to go into here. We see that on a fundamental level where science has discovered the ways quantum physics is changing our perception of the ground level of reality, we start to see that spirituality and science kind of start coming together. This has been experienced in the past 50, 60 years where more discussions have started to take place between spiritual leaders and scientists. The examples of which are Krishnamurti talking to psychologists and philosophers and David Bohm, who was personally in conversations with Krishnamurti and Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama called David Bohm his science guy. 
David Bohm is the author from whom I take the term the undivided whole. His final work, the work that he finished before he died, was essentially a scientific treatise on a spiritual idea, which is fantastic in itself. And you know, that's what's lovely about exploring these things is that they take you into a dimension which seems beyond the world. But I believe it's more in the world than anything else. And I feel this view also echoes in Rumi's poem. This poem is called Body Intelligence and I'll be reading a part of it. It goes as follows. But uncle, O oh uncle, the universe of the creation word, the divine command to be, that universe of qualities is beyond any pointing to. More intelligent than intellect, more spiritual than spirit. No being is unconnected to that reality. And that connection cannot be said there. There's no separation and no return. There are guides who can show you the way. Use them, but they will not satisfy your longing. Keep wanting that connection with all your pulsing energy. The throbbing vein will take you further than any thinking. Muhammad said, don't theorize about essence. All speculations are just more layers of covering. Human beings love coverings. They think the designs on the curtains are what's being concealed. And I think that's just beautiful. Where he speaks of this reality to which we are all connected. That connection that can't be spoken about because speaking about it requires a kind of knowledge. And I realize that I'm also engaged in this act of futility where I am trying to speak about it. But I feel as if I have no choice. And I do want to share. And I'd like to end this episode by reading a small part of the end of the first chapter in the book, We Get to Live. It starts as follows. We wish to find a sense of feeling in our own experience, that life isn't what we thought it to be. We can take a river and mark its boundaries and say, that's the river and everything outside those boundaries is not the river. But what of the water that seeps underground and makes the flowers bloom on the side of the riverbed? What of the fish that we can take from the river? What of the animal life that the river supports? which in turn support the flourishing of the forests? And lastly, what of the deltas and swamps that the river creates that become fertile ground for us to grow food in? If we look at the river like this, it's hard to say what is not the river, for the river feeds into everything. Is a river the flow of a glacier? Or is a glacier an icy river? Is the sea the endpoint of the river? Or the large pool where all the rivers of the world meet? It is in these explorations that we will find our boundaries slowly dissolving, like the astronauts who first went into space and found it impossible to see political borders on the beautiful land we call this earth. We too can find it in ourselves to melt these imaginary borders. The separation is everywhere, but at the same time, it is nowhere. I thank you all very much for listening, and until next time, this is Anu on We Get to Live.